Good morning, church. As we continue to worship, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9 this morning. As you're turning to Mark chapter 9, I know that your heart is heavy as my heart is heavy. The past two weeks, we've watched uh, riots. We watched a peaceful protest uh, across our country. And I do think it's important for us to, to speak to that uh, this morning as a church and for me just to, to help us to center our thoughts around what we see. What, what do you see when you see these protests? Uh, what do you see when you see uh, riots and, and even looting? Uh, there is a sense where we see pain, we, we see confusion, we see chaos, but I do want to encourage you to see hope. What do I mean by that? As I've watched uh, some of these protests over these past uh, two weeks, uh, they are shining examples of hope for us as a church to be able to say, thank you, God. Uh, hope shining forth in the midst of these difficult, painful, heartbreaking conversations. You've seen the images that I've seen. You, you know what I'm talking about when, when you've seen police officers kneeling in solidarity with, with protesters, supporting protesters. When you see them hand in hand in the midst of COVID-19, uh, hand in hand, close together, praying with one another, embracing one another across racial lines and political lines, uh, you see a sense of, of unity. You, you see vast crowds, vast crowds, different races, different ethnicities, face down, uh, hearing uh, for eight minutes and 46 seconds just how long that was. Eight minutes and 46 seconds is a, is a reenactment of, of the last words of George Floyd. And you see the unity uh, across uh, any types of quote-unquote divides, that, that this was uh, inhumane, this was outrageous, this was a, a gross sin. And, and you have this unity of empathy, this unity of outrage. I've seen some of images and, and videos that literally have brought me to tears of Christians worshiping together, onlookers stopping to see how the body of Christ across the country in the midst of protest are, are joining their hearts in song and in prayer. Christians, we must refuse. We must refuse to see only the worst of these past two weeks. Yes, yeah, yes, there's there have been riots, yes, there have been looting, yes, there has been chaos. But the vast majority, the vast majority of our country protests and condemns these acts. So we as a church, I, you, we, we stand. We, we stand in support. We stand in solidarity with our Af African-American brothers and sisters, and, and we, we just want to say with a unified voice that we continue, continue to condemn all forms of bigotry and racism, whether those are intentional or unintentional. Uh, so many people ask the question, you know, where do we go from here? Where, what, what, what are the next steps as, as we see this, this moment, this moment of unity, of focus around this painful, painful subject that has decades, frankly, it has histories, uh, 
the very founding of the United States. We, we've had these, these tensions implicit in, in the very fabric of, of our country. Where, where do we go from here? We can just tell you, um, I know it's not trite slogans. And, and you know that too. I, I know that, that trite, simple solutions, that's not the answer. We're tempted to that. I'm tempted to that. I'm tempted to over-spiritualize this. I think in this moment, I do know that a path for us moving forward as a body of Christ is to lament the injustice, to be able to lament the pain, to be able to lament the brokenness of our world that... uh, produces these types of acts of violence that have been perpetuated, perpetuated for, for years and years and years. We want to listen, so we lament. We want to listen. We want to listen well. And in listening well, we want to be in a posture of humility to learn to love all of our neighbors well. Not everybody that's watching this are, are white believers, but I, but I do think it's one of the only parts of my, my journey is, is here, is, is realizing that moving forward, I, I have to listen and I have to learn what, what does it mean to, to truly love well all of my neighbors. I'm a part of a group. It's one of the most exciting things that, that I have the joy of being your pastor and being connected to a group of pastors across our city that every a month we we eat together, we pray together, and we've been doing this for over a, a year now. And that grouping includes um, Hispanic pastor, it includes uh, African American pastor, it includes uh, me and another Caucasian brother, it, it includes a, a brother who has uh, has uh, mixed racial heritage of, of white and African American, Caucasian and African American. So there are these uh, wonderful perspectives in this group and. It just so happened we were planning to meet this past Thursday. And I, I bet you can imagine uh, th- this, this was a raw conversation. Now, it was an honest conversation. And for that two hours that we're eating together and praying together and listening to one another, I thought to myself, uh, this isn't something that we could be doing unless we had that that collateral of trust that was built up over the last year where we were meeting together and eating together and praying together and getting to know one another and those incremental steps for such a time as this as our country our city is is dealing with this division god has has placed us in these roles and in these relationships where we can learn from one another and i i can i can listen and and listen to to my African-American brother, pastor friend, who, who shares what, what his story is like, his narrative is like. That is, that is not something that I can presume and assume to, to know. I need to listen and I, I need, I need to, to learn. And as a church, we need to take steps to be able to create avenues of true listening, true learning that lead us to places of of lament as we come in solidarity with those who face any type, any type of injustice. So to that end, before I jump into Mark chapter 9, quite the introduction here, I know, so thanks for being patient. You, you can see this is just at the very depth of my heart. I cannot tell you 
can tell you how many times this week and last week I've just been brought to tears. And, and you have too. And, that, and that's why I'm speaking so passionately because this, this breaks your heart too. And so where do we go from this? Well, I know one thing that we do is we go to our knees in prayer. And so I want to encourage us as a church to be able to come together and pray together. Uh, this past week, I was uh, John Woods, our uh, worship pastor, he, John was able to, to send me a liturgy for a time of widespread suffering. And so uh, this is going to be a prayer that we're going to pray together. And when you uh, see the yellow, I'm going to invite you on your couch. I'm going to invite you in your home. I'm going to invite you wherever you are to join in unison uh, with your family, with friends, or whoever is with you in praying this together. Let us pray together as a church. Christ our King, our world is overtaken by unexpected calamity and by a host of attending fears worries, and insecurities. We witness suffering, confusion, and hardship multiplied around us, and we find ourselves swept up in these same anxieties and troubles, dismayed by so many uncertainties. Let us pray together these words. Now we turn to you, O God, in this season of our common distress. Be merciful, O Christ, to those who suffer, to those who worry, to those who grieve, to those who are threatened or harmed in any way by this upheaval. Let your holy compassions be active throughout the world even now, tending the afflicted, comforting the brokenhearted, and bringing hope to many who are hopeless. Use even these hardships to woo our hearts nearer to you, O God. Indeed, O oh Father, may these days of disquiet become a catalyst for conviction and repentance, for the tendering of our affections, for the stirring of our sympathies, for the refining of our love. Inhabit now your church, O oh Spirit of the risen Christ. Unite and equip your people for the work before them. Father, empower your children to live as your children. In times of distress, let us respond, not as those who would instinctively entrench for our own self-preservation, but rather as those who, in imitation of their Lord, would move in humble obedience toward the needs and hurts of their neighborhoods and communities. You were not ashamed to share in our sufferings, Jesus. Let us now be willing to share in yours, serving as your visible witnesses in this broken world. We, your people, know the good and glorious end of this story. Our heavenly hope is secure in this time of widespread suffering then. Let us rest afresh in the surpassing peace of that vision that your whole church on earth might be liberated to love more generously and sacrificially. Now labor in and through us, O Lord, extending and multiplying the many expressions of your mercy. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, are the famous passage of Scripture that we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. I'll read it for us as you are reading along in your copy of God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. Why? For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Mark chapter two, uh, Mark chapter nine, verses two through nine are what we know famously as the transfiguration of Christ, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, those who are in the inner circle of intimacy with Jesus, who are able to see the vision of Christ that is wholly unique. I want us to see under three headings this morning uh, the meaning and, and the way that this unique moment in the Gospels intersects your life and it intersects my life. So I want us under these three headings. The headings are this, the vision, the visitor's, and the voices. So vision, visitors, and voices here. Let's take the first, the vision. Verses 2 through 4. Uh, it's wholly unique. Obviously, we see that in the passage here. The heaven's radiance floods the earthly experience, not only of Jesus, but of the disciples. Heaven is descending in this moment as Moses and Elijah enter into the earth's orbit there and they're able to see the disciples are this vision of Jesus with those wonderful Old Testament saints of the past here. All of the divine glory of Jesus is expressed in this moment without the veil of humanity. It's hard to describe. I mean, you can see Mark, even in the passage here, trying to come up with the description for it. He says in verse 3 that his clothes, those are Jesus' clothes, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So he's longing for an image to help us see what is a wholly unique. The word for transfiguration is the word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we know as the Septuagint. It is the word that uh, we translate into metamorphosis. So we have a wholly unique transformation. We have the divinity of Jesus on display without the veil of humanity. It's a spectacle, no doubt. We look at the other gospel writers. Luke tells us that Jesus is bright as a flash of lightning. Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun in Matthew chapter 17. I I just sort of imagine uh, the the disciples on this mountain, I I can imagine this starlit sky behind them and, and all of the stars cascading their light before the disciples. And here is Jesus shining like the brightest star himself. We're not far from July the 4th, and you have an annual tradition. I have an annual tradition of going to see fireworks, and especially when my boys were younger. You know, when they're in that two-year-old and four-year-old, six-year-old stage, they they look up into the sky, 
And I love, I love the two views of fireworks that a father has. He, he, as a father, I, as a father, am able to, to look up at the fireworks and see this fountain of color just sort of cascading in uh, the darkness uh, of the night there. And then I'm able to, to look at the face of my boys, and I'm able to see the different hues of color shining upon their face, sort of illuminating their face. And if I look really closely, uh, you've seen this, haven't you? You can see in their eyes, you can see the reflection of the fireworks upon them as their eyes are wide with surprise, their eyes are wide with delight. The skin is shining of the colors of the fireworks. And so it is here on this mountain, this Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples, if you can look into their eyes, what their eyes are seeing is the brightness of the image and passion and, and holy, unique divinity of Jesus. Right there shining in their eyes. All the fullness of His divinity shining forth. That's the vision. I want us to see the, the visitors. We have two visitors here, Elijah, Moses, so why do we have Elijah and Moses? Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the giving of the law. Both of them had wholly unique mountaintop experiences. You remember Elijah? They're on Mount Carmel battling the prophets of Baal. Uh, the uh, God sending down the, the very fire to ignite the sacrificial offering as Elijah's taunting the prophets of Baal. You have Moses. He goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. Uh, neither Moses nor Elijah have unique, uh, they both, excuse me, have unique endings to their life. Moses, in this um, sad part of the wandering into the wilderness, he never makes it to the promised land. Never makes it to the promised land. Elijah uniquely is taken up, as you know, uh, he's taken up in a whirlwind and, and doesn't experience an earthly death as everyone else will, except for Enoch in the book of Genesis. So you have this uniqueness, Elijah representing the prophets, Moses representing the law. You have the uniqueness of their mountaintop experiences. And in some ways, if you can imagine it this way, Elijah and Moses are, are sort of saying to Jesus, here's the baton. God, in the uniqueness of His plan, called us for a, a particular lap in, in the race of salvation history. And, and Moses took the people of God so far. It was used by God Himself so far. But, but the baton was passed. And it was passed to the prophets. And so Elijah is now, he, he went so far, but he's passing the baton to the author and perfecter of our faith, who we are sure will make it to the final destination, who we are sure will be able to accomplish what their ministries what the law and the prophets, and even in the writings of the law and prophets, what ultimately what they point to, which is Jesus and his sufficiency. So we have the visitors. We have in this passage here the voices, or excuse me, we have the vision. So we have the vision, we have the visitors, and finally here, verses five through seven, we have we have three voices that I want you to just think about this morning as, as you engage with this passage here. The first voice is the voice of Peter. Uh, we know Peter has no hesitation speaking up. So it's not surprising to us that Peter is going to be the spokesperson here on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got something to say about this. And so what does he say? Verse 5, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now it is 
immensely easy to completely miss the point of what Peter is saying in this moment here. He says three tents, and if we're not careful, we go to the images of Boy Scouts, camping, uh, setting up you know, tents for some type of expedition. That is not what Peter is saying here. The, the word that is translated tent is the word, again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is the same word for tabernacle. Peter is terrified. Why is he terrified? Well, he realizes, like, like Moses realized on Mount Sinai, the presence of God is before them. And he realizes that we as disciples, Peter, James, and John, they are sinners. So in this moment, he's saying three tabernacles, three tabernacles need to be erected, and we need to offer. What do, we, what do they need to offer? They need to offer a sacrifice. Surely Elijah could be a priest to, uh, for the sacrifice to be offered, uh, and he could be the mediator to a holy God. Surely Moses could do that. Certainly Jesus could do this. So they realize, Peter certainly does, he realizes the holiness of the moment. He wants to build a tabernacle to worship God through the giving of a sacrifice. But then a second voice comes to calm him down a little bit. To, to redirect his instincts here. The second voice comes from the cloud. It, again, if we go back to the Old Testament, God is speaking through the cloud. The cloud descends upon the tabernacle. So we know this voice to be the voice of God himself, saying, what? this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And notice what happens after the voice from the cloud. God the Father speaks. We read in verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Moses, poof. Elijah, gone. There were six people on that mountain. After the voice of the Father speaks, only four. Their eyes are not taken by Elijah anymore. Their lies are not taken by Moses anymore. Their focus is wholly fixated on Jesus and Jesus alone. Now this means something, doesn't it? Why? God the Father is saying, Jesus alone is all you need. He, he is the one mediator. He's the only way to relate to me, a holy God. Peter, you don't have to build a tent. You don't have to set up a tent. You don't have to build a tabernacle here. Why? Because Jesus is the living tabernacle to end all tabernacles. You don't have to offer a sacrifice here on the mountain, Peter, because Jesus is the final sacrifice to uh, end all sacrifices. Jesus will be the great high priest. First voice is the voice of Peter. The second voice is the voice of God the Father. And the third voice is the, is the voice of Jesus giving instructions to the disciples in verse 9. Chapter 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the very thing that Jesus tells the disciples coming down from the mountain into the valley is talking about how he would uh, be raised from the dead. He, he's already preparing the disciples for why he has to come down the mountain. Now, it's important to see the pronoun in verse 9. They came down from the mountain. I would imagine the disciples in that moment thinking, well, this is it. Jesus is 
He has reached His final destination. He will ascend to His rightful place in heaven. He is the Son of God. No longer will He have to put up with Roman occupation. I can imagine the disciples wondering, maybe even fearful, that Jesus would leave them in this moment, but He doesn't. They came down the mountain. Jesus walks back down the mountain, headed where? Headed to Jerusalem and headed to His own torturous death. The mountaintop experience was an experience of all experience here. But it wasn't the end of the story. There was work to be done in the valley. There was salvation that was to be purchased. And only Jesus, only Jesus could offer that sacrifice. Now this gives us hope. Now you say, well, how does it give us hope? How would the transfiguration intersect with my life. Well, we as followers of Jesus, any of you who are watching this morning that have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you've asked Him to forgive you of your sins. You've placed your faith in His life, His death for your sins, and His resurrection that defeats sin, hell, and the grave. You are, as Paul would say again and again and again in his letters, you are two words, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So if you are in Christ, the transfiguration is a coming attraction. It is a preview of what each of us will experience. We will experience a transfiguration. Will we become God? No. We'll become God. But as Christians, our earthly body will be metamorphosized. It will be transformed into a glorious transfiguration, a glorious transformation into perfect, eternal bodies. Uh, we live in the valley now. There's no way to deny this. We live in the valley now, and at times the, the valley affects our physical life. Our, our body, I don't know if you, you felt this when you woke up this morning, maybe your lower back was hurting you, maybe your knees or aching, maybe, maybe there's a cough that you can't get over. I mean, we know we're living in COVID-19 time here. So we realize that our bodies, they break down. Diagnosis is they, they politely knock on the door and we can see them coming. And sometimes they just kick the front door, kick the back door down, and they're a complete surprise and they take our breath away. That's a part of living in the valley. But the valley is not our final home. Our home is previewed for us in the Mount of Transfiguration when we will be transfigured, when the shackles of disease will be loosed forever and our pains will be transformed into praises and every disease will be transformed into eternal doxology. That's where you're headed. No matter how you feel this morning, no matter what you're facing this morning, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, it previews your final reality. Now more than that, when we live in the valley, we, we can struggle with the, the, the fallenness of our body, our earthly bodies, but, but at times we can just be overwhelmed by the earthly valley. We, we can be overwhelmed by the pains of injustice and anger and hurt and distrust and chaos, and we can just feel despair, despair crouching around us and everything just seems hopeless and despair seems to be the only 
truthful answer to what we're experiencing. But what? The Mount of Transfiguration is a coming attraction. It's a coming attraction understanding that even our earth is groaning for transformation. Even our earth is groaning for redemption. And there is a day that He, God, will make all things new. And while our earth groans in the valley now, we are certain, we are certain of the transformation of our earth into a new heaven and a new earth where once and forever injustice of all kinds are vanquished. They're vanquished for eternity. Pains, racism, injustice, sexism, ages, all of the isms of our earthly existence are forevermore vanquished. And the redemption of all things that God will make new. I am certain of that. I'm certain of that because the, the Mount of Transfiguration, it gives us a preview of what we will experience individually, what we will experience collectively, what our world will experience in the new heaven and the new earth. I was thinking about this the other day. There is a house in my hometown. So when I go back to see my stepmother and my father, go back to spend some time with my mom, uh, for the last six years, I would say, the running uh, route that I have back at home, it takes me past this house Six years ago, seven years ago, the owner of the house began a renovation project. And so every time that I come back to the house, I run past the house and we go a year and they're still renovating the house. Two years and it seems that they've stopped doing the renovations, but it's not finished yet. Three years, four years, five years. And so here is a house that is in the process of renovation, but we can't get to the completion. The homeowners haven't moved in and I run past that house and it just is this sort of living parable of, of, of how... This side of heaven, we, we can wonder, is that ever going to get finished? Is, there, is, that, is that renovation project ever going to be completed? Is the contractor ever going to be able to hand the keys over to the owner and the owner move in? And we look around us and, and we, we live in the midst of a renovation project. And we can wonder to ourselves, looking around, Boy, there is so much work left to be done. There's so much left to be done all around us. But as we look around, know this, that God has called us to be about His work. He has called us to be about that restoration project. He has given you, He's given you that calling to be reconcilers as the gospel has reconciled you to God, and ultimately we're called to reconcile to one another. We're called to build those bridges. We're called to share the good news of the gospel. There is work to be done, but in the midst of the renovation that is left to be done, know this, that it is not dependent upon you. The, the final destination of this renovation project, it is not dependent upon me you, political systems, nations. No, God Himself always finishes what He starts. The future, my friend, as uncertain as the present can feel right now, the future is certain. The Mount of Transfiguration is a preview of coming attractions. Let us pray. Gracious God, turn our hearts to that vision 
as we look around us and we see so much work to be done, we, we can be overwhelmed. We, we can at times wonder, what do I need to do next? Give us the assurance of that final template that is before us, the, the final assurance of where all of this is headed. Give us the power of your Spirit to be about in our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, our church, our state, our nation, and our world. Give us the power of your Spirit to be led by you as those that have been reconciled to you and are called to do that work of lamenting, listening, learning to love neighbor as self. I pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.